I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you know, Alison? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to part two of episode 60 of Chart Music. Here I am, I'll need him, your host. With my dear friends Neil Kulkarna and Simon Price. Ahoy, ahoy. Boys, I, I'm a bit worried that I built up this episode of Top of the Pops that we're going to start covering in this episode. Because, after all, Top of the Pops has not done anything special to, to make this happen. Usual deal, Michael Hurls received the charts on Tuesday morning. He's just hammered out a, a load of bands and artists on a bit of paper. He's handed it to his minions and he said, sort it. But... I can't help feeling there's a bit of magic to this episode. Oh, there is, which miraculously emerges from... You do sense a slightly random nature in the decision of, of, you know, who's on. But Mm. every now and then, much like in in an episode of Top of the Pops, a normal episode of Top of the Pops, there'll be a lot of guff, but the occasional bit of gold. This is one of those episodes of Top of the Pops that I would have remembered precisely because it's just top quality. Yeah. So, you know, I would have been thinking about the previous weeks and just how much better this one is. Every now and then, just by accident, I don't think it's a decision-making process, just by accident, they happen to hit upon the best records in the charts. Um, Yeah. There's tiny things that could have been better about this episode. There are some amazing records that could have made it but overwhelmingly yeah. it's, a, it's a corker i remember a little while ago you allowed us to choose our own episodes and uh, uh yes. i went for one from 1979 you know the one with sparks and the specials mm. and stuff like that yeah which to my mind is is, is the greatest but it's interesting that uh, 1983 which people do think of as a bit of a fallow year is the one that's provided you al with um, I'm guessing, you know, your favourite so far of the ones, certainly of the ones we've dealt with. Are you saying? Uh, yeah, it's it's up there. Not so much for absolutely amazing standout performances, but just the constant punch mm. of of decent tune after decent tune after decent tune, and you're just thinking, well, is there going to be a shit one on this? Mm. And you know, this sort of is well, a shit one, but but even then, it's, yeah. I mean, there's there, there are just plenty of talking points in this show, and yes. you know, we always say at the end, what are you talking about at school the next day? I mean, spoiled for choice almost this time, yeah, yeah. Um, and even though you said that it's just like Michael Hurl giving a sheet of paper with some names on it and saying sort it, I do feel like they put a bit of attention to detail in this one. I feel like the production values are quite high. I mean, I'll talk about that as we go along, but there are a few things where they've done things they didn't need to do, but it really adds to it. Um, there are also things they've done they did need to do, which has you fucking screaming at the, at the telly. Um, but yeah, um, it's, it's, you, you, you can't fault them for actually trying this time. Yeah. It's not autopilot, put it that way. No. 
Oh, come on, we've teased the pop craze youngsters long enough. <laughs> All right then, pop craze youngsters, it is now finally time to go way back to April of 1983. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. <laughs> It's 25 minutes past seven on Thursday, April the 7th, 1983, and Top of the Pops is about to commence its 996th episode. And hey, if you turn those nines upside down, what do you get, Neil? Oh my God, you do, don't you? (laughs) Yes. Your hosts this evening are... Simon Bates, who is still the overlord of the housewives in the mid-morning slot on Radio 1 and is now firmly bedded into the top of the Pops roster, a talent pool which also consists at the moment of Mike Smith, Tommy Vance, Kid Jensen, John Peel, Gary Davis, Janice Long, Richard Skinner, Pat Sharp and Andy Peebles. Oh, Christ. Travis, Blackburn and Savile are still making intermittent appearances, but it's being made clear to the pop craze youngsters that their time is done. Yeah. Yeah. But Bates, Bates stays, doesn't he, for as long as he possibly can, really. He brings all those housewives to the party, remember, Neil? Yeah, of course, of course. For, for a lot of this episode, he seems like a bit of a sort of ghost hanging on um, on the shoulder yes. of his co-presenter. In fact, he does seem like the kind of subordinate role um, in this mm. in this episode, which is weird for a, a guy who's quite senior in the pecking order. Yeah. The other host this evening is Peter Powell, who is nearly three years into his stint on the weekday drive-time slot, which was vacated by Kid Jensen when he moved to CNN and temporarily held by Paul Gambaccini. Chaps, would you care to guess the age difference between these two? Ooh, ten years? Yeah, I'd say around about a decade, yeah. Powell, 32. Mm-hmm. Bates, 36. No. Bates is 36. Oh, man. 36. <laughs> a mere four years age difference. That's that's me and you pretty much, isn't it, Neil? It is. It is. That's crackers. It's a bit like uh, The yeah. Graduate, isn't it? With uh, Dustin <laughs> yes. Hoffman and, um, uh, you know, Mrs. Robinson, whose name escapes me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one, one of them's playing young. One of them's playing old. Older than they are, aren't they? Definitely. Mm, yeah. Together on screen with Bates in his usual cream sports jacket and red shirt and pink tie um, and Powell with his uh, fawn banana armour vest over a white t-shirt. What is he wearing? With what they're wearing and the way they're acting and the flashing neon in the background. The kind of overall impression you get from this is an opening scene of an episode of The Gentle Touch (laughs) where a maths teacher's nipped out to Piccadilly Circus of an evening to pick up some trade outside the amusement arcade uh, before getting blackmailed by the underworld to nick them a steady supply of boxes of pencils, board rubbers and that black card that you scratch with a compass and it goes all silver <laughs> these two people don't belong together no you're right to pick up the teacher thing there's something very teacherly about 
Powell in particular. Mm. He's this odd combination of kind of you, Laurie, and an overly keen chair straddling teacher who ends up leaving. He's a chair straddler. Yeah, he's, he's got the full um, Joanne Wally um, scandal poster thing going on <laughs> yeah. in his uh, teaching style, definitely. I mean, that vest he's wearing, what the fuck is he wearing? This sort of skanky, yeah. coarse, hessian, itchy top yeah. looks like it's made out of shredded wheat. <laughs> Which he's tucked in, you know, um, over a white t-shirt. He looks like the party crusher in the hard way. He looks oddly <laughs> hench as well. <laughs> but the thing is with Powell, although Bates, as ever, manages to sort of mask his craven ambition behind a facade of, of, of uncularity, with Powell you feel always like he's consistently performing a kind of supervisory performance check on himself. Um, <laughs> yes. After he's done his intro here... You can almost see him momentarily nod himself a 10 out of 10 for his delivery. He's such a careerist fucker. But at least with Powell, I think, you can buy into the illusion that he's into music. Whereas with Bates, Mm. of course, music is just something he's kind of disinterested with. But Powell can't really fake it. When I contrast his kind of enthusiasm, if you like, with the genuine enthusiasm of someone like Janice Long, it's clearly just, yeah slapped on as it were i love the fact that you've both zoned in on um the top that powell is wearing because i was fascinated <laughs> yes. by this as well banana armor vest is actually spot on you've nailed it there it's this kind of unhemmed thing it's not it doesn't have sewn hems it's his sleeveless top no. which makes him look like a kind of medieval villager it's like a wife beater for monks isn't it yeah exactly <laughs> i mean i'm no fashionista i'm no jeff banks don't care what anyone says but um it's it's what's the word is it a tabard or a smock or is it a jerkin a jerkin uh, i think yeah but whatever it is yeah neil says shredded wheat i thought yeah it looks like it's made out of oatmeal it's just (laughs) yes but it's very on trend for 83 it's sort of thing you'd see a lot of the bands wearing Mm. and at the age of 32 yeah powell is definitely aligning himself with the younger generation whereas simon bates is very much well i will allow this to happen on my watch but you know i don't necessarily approve the thing is with this show as in chart music is that when you've been doing it over a period of years you can sort of paint yourself into a bit of a corner right because peter powell right okay stunt kite mogul and all that blah blah um yes who my dad famously called a perv i mean famously if you're a chart music completist (laughs) i never quite found out why he called him a perv but the thing is when you've done this podcast over, over a long period of time you end up sort of forgetting what opinions you've expressed about people and those opinions mm. can shift and yet mm, yes. you feel a certain pressure to be consistent in your view on someone no fuck that simon go with how you feel well i i, I may well have slagged off peter powell in the past i may well have um mm. painted myself into a corner by doing so i don't know right now watching this episode i don't mind him i think he's all right mm. you know mm. um yeah uh, yeah absolutely he does seem like he cares about music he very much cares about you the viewer wanting to know how much he cares about music that he's yeah, kind of yeah, an insider yeah, yeah. you get that very much that you know whatever records entering the charts he was clued up on it two months earlier that you know you get that vibe off him and fair enough because given the show that he's doing on radio one that's probably true he probably was into these records or at least aware of these records yeah simon bates as well right i can't and won't retract anything i've said about him previously <laughs> right you know looking like a maths teacher as you said and feeling like the fun police but in in his old age in his old age uh, and you know I've, i follow him on um on, on twitter he seems like an all yeah. right bloke you know yes he's, he's got know. good politics he's always slagging off johnson and i don't know i found out simon the other day do you know what simon bates is up to nowadays what he's the uk correspondent for cbs news what yes what covering everything yes 
<laughs> I was just flicking on YouTube. I was looking for some old CBS News stuff, and it just came across Simon Bates talks about Brexit, or Simon Bates talks about COVID in the UK, and it's like. Fucking hell, that, that's actual Simon Bates. It's not some mm. American bloke who happened to be called Simon Bates. It was him. Yeah, it's not like the Chris Morris on BBC News who's not the no. Chris Morris. Mm. It really is Simon I'm glad you forewarned me of this. And at the beginning, they always say, Simon's views are his own and not necessarily those of CBS News. <laughs> Shame they don't also add, may contain sexual swear words. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Simon Bates, the fucking Ed Morrow of the new century who'd yeah, have thought like he's some kind of wild-eyed radical yeah yeah i mean that that is yeah i mean it's slightly less mental than it would have been if peter powell was the you know the, the yeah. uk correspondent um i can't get past <laughs> what he's wearing just can't get past what he's wearing in the yeah so though with powell he looks like he's sort of like he's got himself togged up to go to a roller disco and then at the last minute it's been changed to an outdoor pagan wedding or something <laughs> but Bates doesn't let you down does he Bates is full on Bates in his outfit basically what he looks like he looks like somebody from now who's dressed up to go to a very cocaine-y party with a theme Yachts Rock yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to a guy in 1983 who's sort of basically dressed like he's out of the Rupert Holmes Pina Colada song video. <laughs> <laughs> this very month, both of them were featured in an article in the Belfast Telegraph entitled How the DJs Cash In, which shines a light on how Radio 1 DJs are making money hand over fist away from the BBC. It reads, They are the darlings of 1980s showbiz, owners of fast cars, the companions of beautiful women, with voices (laughs) known all over the land. But the disc jockeys behind the microphones of Radio 1 do not get to own a Porsche by working a broadcasting house alone. Up and down the country, the demand for Mike Reed, Simon Bates, <laughs> David Kidd Jensen, Dave Lee Travis and Peter Powell is big. We get 50 calls a day from promoters wanting Mike Reed, said his agent Ronnie Ball. Yeah, about 49 of them are probably blue tulip putting on voices. (laughs) (laughs) Will you open my washing machine? (laughs) They don't make too much from the BBC. Opening shops, discos and public appearances is where they make the money. The mighty Mecca has been on the line earlier in search of Mr. Reed, the DJ with the rock star looks who hosts Radio One's <laughs> breakfast show. They would pay £1,750, that's over six grand in today's money, for him to put in an appearance, and they would pay it because they know they would fill up. For the benefit of the pop craze foreigners, that's Mecca the British club circuit, not Mecca the holy city. Mm. Um, They won't ask him, Mike Reed, to play Do the Hucklebuck during the Hajj or anything (laughs) like that. Six grand. Blimey. For doing what, though? On the other hand, Dave Lee Travis has been hosting his own road show for the past eight years. He doesn't play the records. He employs a disc jockey. It's a two and a half hour show, but Dave only does an hour and a half, said Mr. Ball. 
DLT leaves his weekday afternoon show on Friday to move to a Saturday morning slot and Radio 1 publicity say that Travis is making the switch so he could concentrate on outside work. That involves competitions, prizes, jokes and generally DLT being DLT. Christ. The price is about £1,250. That is 4314 of your modern-day money, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> if this all seems like a lot of money, then maybe it is, because you do not see them as others do, as heroes. <laughs> Mike Reed is like a pop star, says Mr. Ball. Women wait for him outside discos. He is a superstar. Of course, your super jock can also make money from functions other than discos. Besides the knees-ups, there are beauty contests, TV quiz shows, voiceovers for commercials, and Miss Caravan contest appearances. (laughs) Peter Pal is inundated with requests for appearances. He also lends his name to the sponsorship of H Clothes and promotes Woodpecker Cider. (laughs) <laughs> he's a one-man empire in a way says his agent adding that he asks a fair price 800 pounds a night 2760 pound in real money simon bates is also honest about his earnings and admits to feelings of guilt the going rate he said was 800 pounds to 1200 per occasion there's no point in lying, that's just silly, he said. Any Radio 1 DJ who tells you he can't earn a lot of money is lying. Simon is also asked to appear at 40 charity functions a week. He is selective, but does his utmost for those he helps. I still come out of it very well, but I try to do charity or unpaid work. You have to put something back in life. (laughs) (laughs) He actually said that. (laughs) Simon, would you have paid £800 to uh, £1,200 in 1983 money to have Simon Bates turn up at your wedding? (laughs) So he can just walk around giving everybody a stern look. Yeah. Calm down, everybody. Conform. (laughs) Yeah, conform. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's weird the outrage to it, I guess. But, uh, you know, it's only this year that the BBC have been forced to kind of publish a list of staff earnings from external events. So, and it's only relatively recently that covers the first three months of 2021. So people like Andrew Marr and Emily Maitlis and all this are now turning up on this register. It's never happened before. No. Apparently to address, you know, issues of impartiality or whatever. But um, mm. that would have been an eye-opener if I would have read the Belfast Telegraph back in uh, back in 83 yeah. to know all of that. Good bit of investigative journalism there, I've got to say. Mm. Yes. Yeah. If I were running the West Midlands Safari Park in 1983, I would have seriously considered offering Simon Bates double his rate <laughs> to turn up on a bank holiday and toss off some of the animals <laughs> in between playing records and, and handing out those flimsy cardboard hats. You know, but yeah. I think my stipulation would be at least one giraffe and two elephants. <laughs> Start off with something he's like vaguely familiar with, like a wild boar. It's yes. like close enough to a pig. Or like one of those yeah. little Vietnamese pot-bellied ones, just like yes. you know, just, to, just to get get his eye in. Something for the kids. Yeah. I think we'd have all liked to have yeah. seen uh, DLT just, just strolling through the lion enclosure. Yes. <laughs> Potentially with meat strapped to him in some way, but yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
for a live presentation of Top of the Pops. Now, all the bands in here, though, some of them may be mining tonight. But we start off, for starters, right, we give you the Celtic Soul Brothers. This is Dexys! <laughs> Barely have time to let the clatter of yellow pearl die down and pick the shards of pink vinyl out of our faces before we are immediately assailed by a time check from Bates, a radio man to the last, who tells us what the time is in order to show off that once again this episode is going out live. But he then says, Now all the bands are here, though some of them may be miming tonight. What the f- fuck is that all about so he suddenly turned into whispering bob harris or something like you know yeah. is, is he trying to sort of say oh this show top of the pops is not very authentic you know i mean fucking yeah. no shit sherlock you know what i mean you've been there long enough we get it we get yeah. the idea we understand <laughs> we understand the basic conceit of top of the pops we're not stupid i've got to say by the way that that intro with the flying colored vinyl and the, and the yellow pearl we've talked about it millions of times but it just feels mm. nice it feels like coming home to me i know yes. that the old uh, ccs whole lot of love is probably the more iconic intro to top of the pops but for me you know that is really my kind of my heart and my home is is the yellow pearl and the uh, colored vinyl and um mm. it reminded me there was this um for a while you could get bubblegum in the shape of vinyl records do you remember this yes yeah 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 and uh so like pink so obviously disc shaped bubblegum and it would have mm. like a, maybe a picture of a pop star in the middle but by the time you got it it was really brittle and really dry so you opened it and it would crack and it would look like <laughs> the start of top exploding of the top. your face yeah yeah so i so watching this i, I could almost in, in a proustian rush almost taste that very cheap bubblegum and yeah Aww. it's just it's just it's just lovely the the yellow pearl intro you can't beat it for me mm-hmm. what does phil linnett use to put his posters up go on Attack, 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 <laughs> attack. <laughs> Sorry. It is strange yeah. that Bates warning about, because it doesn't sound like an in-joke or anything to me. It, his thing about, you know, some of the acts will be miming. It sounds like it's a kind of reaction. I don't know if they had viewer complaints or something. Mm. Well, for a start off, are any of the bands playing live tonight? Not that I could hear. No, mm. none of them are. <laughs> And I think Bates, that little smile he gives at the end, I believe that he's taking the piss there because, bear in mind, chaps, this is the week after New Order appeared on top of the pops to perform Blue oh, Monday Live. Mm-hmm. And right. they made such a dog's ass of it that it caused Ian Curtis to rise from the grave just so he could hang <laughs> himself again out of embarrassment. Oh, brilliant. That must be it. Well done on uh, figuring that out. Yeah, that's got to be the reason, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah, That clip is mortifying. Yes, it is. Yeah. there was another recent incident involving uh miming Mm -hmm. that's going to come up later on so we'll 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 leave it till then okay powell ridiculously over enthusiastic as ever cuts in to commune with the youth in a no-nonsense manner and says but we start off as starters right (laughs) yes very rick from the young ones right kids yeah (laughs) with the celtic soul brothers by dex's midnight runners Formed from the ashes of the punk band The Killjoys in Birmingham in 1978, Dex's Midnight Runners started gigging around Bennytown at the end of the year and almost immediately picked up Bernie Rhodes as their manager, who booked them into a studio to record their debut single Dance Dance for his own label Oddball Records. 
After landing a support slot on a specials tour in 1979, they adopted their on-the-waterfront look of donkey jackets and woolly hats, building up a following outside of ATV land. And when Dance Dance was released as part of a distribution deal with EMI, it got to number 40 in January of 1980. After binning off roads and signing with EMI, their second single, Gino, made it all the way to number one for two weeks in May of that year and followed up with the LP Searching for the Young Soul Rebels, which got to number six in July, and There, There, My Dear, which got to number seven in August. However, all was not well in the Dex's camp. While Kevin Rowland was responding to slag-offs in the music papers by refusing to do interviews and taking out advertising space to state that they refused to have anything to do with the dishonest hippie press. Their last single of 1980, Keep It Part 2, Inferiority Part 1, failed to chart, leading to five members walking out. And while their next single, Plan B, was struggling to get to number 58 in March of 1981, they were making moves to get out of their deal with EMI. After signing to Mercury Records and writing the ship with Showmare, which got to number 16 in August of 1981, they finished the year with another flop single, Liars A to E, and the group casting about for a new direction. After hearing the demos of former band member Al Archer's new band, the Blue Ox Babes, Roland was taken by the Irish fiddle stylings of violinist Helen Bevington, leading him to invite her to join the remodeled Dexes, getting her to change her name to Helen O'Hara and pointing the band's new sound towards both the fiddler and the diddler. (laughs) This was the first single release from Dexes Mark II, which only got to number 45 when it was put out in the spring of 1982. Luckily, they had another single in their pocket, Come On Eileen, which got to number one in August of 1982. In the wake of the LP2 Rye getting to number two for four weeks in August of 1982, and the singles Jackie Wilson said getting to number five in October of that year, and let's get this straight from the start, getting to number 17 for two weeks at the end of December, and the band preparing to tour America in the wake of Come On Eileen hammering on the door of the Billboard Top 10 this week, this single was given a dusting off and was put out again last month. It entered the charts last week at number 13, 36, and this week it soared 12 places to number 24. And here in the studio are the raggle taggle gypsios of pop <laughs> and all. We're off to a flyer, aren't we, chaps? Most yeah. definitely. There, there are certain bands where sort of knowledge of them and fondness for them is almost kind of prerequisite of being a music journalist to a certain extent. At the era in which I was engaged mm. with music journalism, I'd say those bands were threefold. They were New Order, Pet Shop Boys, both of whom I'm not that fond of, and Dexies. But mm. luckily, I was always in the Dexies from the first moment that I heard Gino as a really little kid. Mm. Um, it's a record that just keeps doing you in all your life, that. And and I, I love Dexies. Yes. I'm, I'm so delighted to see them on chart music. I think they've always remained meaningful to me. In fact, increasingly meaningful to me over the years. Because ultimately, they ask the most important questions there are 
I think, about being a British musician. The thing is with Dex is they make decisions before even playing a note. I love bands mm. where mm. rather than that kind of musician speak of, you know, oh, it all came together organically and if anyone else likes it, it's mm. a bonus. Dexes are one of those bands where you always feel things that are a deliberate decision that they've thought about. Um, because they're yes. not really a soul band, they're an art band, really. They're a manifesto-type band, um, mm. which is what, to me, as a young kid, was just like, what was so exciting about them. And they answer the most important questions. How do you worship an American past without aping it? How do you celebrate a yes. British past that's complicated through the inevitable traces of immigration in your own past? And that history, not just of pride and resistance and dissidence, but the horrors done in your nation's name, potentially against your own native land. And how do you use the past to make a future? Or at least something that isn't just yeah. nostalgia. And... And, and crucially, given how every single expression of soulfulness in the UK is kind of threaded with these problematic postmodern thievings of identity and culture, how do you do it all without being a cunt? I, I, love, mm. I love Dex's answer to it. Because where the Stones say used rock and roll to be honest, Dex has realised that rock and roll, after 20 years of explosion and decay and entropy, and being in a band and doing the band thing, just isn't going to cut it if you want to keep your intellect and your soul intact. So it's in fact in their rejection of rock and roll that Dexes start realising a way of being in a band with dignity. Dignity's really important when, when thinking about Dexes. So they loathe mm. contemporary pop because they consider it undignified, but they make really addictive pop music. Um, yes. you know, and, 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 and it's the fact that when you dig into Dex's history, you realise they didn't show themselves until they'd rehearsed for a year, you know, until they have a look, mm. until they feel like an army. So all those stories of the mm. exercise routines, the straight edgeness, the lack of booze <laughs> and drugs, all of that is just really thrilling and exciting because it's not just something that falls together. Dex's are always a kind of plan and a project. And you feel that if they were a London or Manchester band, probably some artsy-fartsy journalists would have quite to help with the conceptualization but this is basically from yeah. a load of nutters from birmingham um and the only mm. visionaries are the people in the band i loved searching for the young soul rebels don't get me wrong tell me when yeah. my light turns green is probably my fave dexter song but two rye uh, i think yes. is actually a better album for its second side two rye that it's it was my tarting up record for the longest longest time um, <laughs> and the reason it was my tarting up record is because even though I was slapping on the black lippy and the eyeliner and the nail varnish, I was in that strangely adolescent mix of kind of that Catholic mod flagellant need for purity. That kind of, you know, mm, that, yes. that for rising above. <laughs> it's, it's, don't imagine, I, I should probably stop because I've got loads to say about Dexes and I may well be. Be, be rambling but that mod speed fueled need for purity for rising above sex animated bands as diverse as the jam and the specials in this era but i would argue that dex is mm. kind of take it to the ultimate extreme and and when you're a teenager lines like you know I, i'm going to punish my body until i believe in my soul this is appealing it's a way of it's a way of justifying the fact that you're desperately unattractive and not appealing to anyone it's a way of making a virtue and a righteous sanctuary out of your total lack of confidence it's very appealing to a boy full of hate and full of anger and full of rage what dexes do is mm. they take all that mod sexlessness and they amplify its kind of celibate sternness they write songs mm. that look like love songs but they're not really about love what's being yearned for in all their songs is what's been lost things like passion and community and connection and that's a really resonant thing yeah. in the early 80s um what they remind me of the most in a weird way is public enemy 
<laughs> and I'm not saying remotely wow. that they're, they're yeah. kind of sonically, you know, but there's something public enemy-ish about Dex's. Um, you know, I was really fascinated when reading Simon Reynolds' Rip It Up to read the quote from Mark Cordry in the NME, because they, they did have the haters um, who mm. critiqued Dex's as a kind of elite of pure and dedicated men, and he called it emotional fascism and said their music was a, a perversion of soul that had no tenderness and no sex and no laughter. There is something... Not joyless, but stern about Dex's kind of po-faced mm. that can stray close to parody. You know, the fact the fan club's called Intense Emotions Limited. You know? yes. <laughs> and the, the tour called The Projected Passion Review. But, you know, if in pop you're going to do something like what Dex's or Public Enemy do, you do have to go all the way with it without smirks. Mm. And, and by the time we see them here... They have undergone their third transformation, um, really. So after the mean streets kind of look of yeah. the early years and the sportswear look, this is the period where they've got the Emerald Express fiddlers in. They've got this odd look of kind of poets and navvies and troubadours. Um, they've done a love song by now, Come on Eileen. A, a, so not exactly a straight love song, but a love song about a person at least. Had their biggest hit with it. I love this song because mm. like all Dex's song, it's not about anything that a normal pop song's about. Pop songs are about feelings and romantic feelings and loving feelings. Dex's songs are more about how do I get myself to the point where I'm even capable of love? How do I get to something that isn't horrible or that makes life worth living? They're on this very existential tightrope, always, with their, with their mm. music. And, of course, eventually the success of these singles and the album would end up torturing Roland. But here in this performance, I, I just think we have top-notch Dexes at the peak of their powers. Kevin has never looked better on top of the pops, I don't think, um, than, than the, way he looks, the, the way he looks now. And their togetherness, their physical and musical togetherness, even though they're miming, is just really tangible. Mm. What an amazing start to the show yes. this is. Simon, it seems weird that this was the first release from 2 Rye when they were sitting on Come On Eileen, and, and even more weird that it failed to chart on the first go-round. What the fuck is wrong with people? <laughs> but this makes sense as uh, as the first single of the New Look Dex is. It's a statement of intent, isn't it? It is. Here we are. This is what we're up to nowadays. Uh, don't give a fuck if you like our new direction or not. This is what we're doing. Get used to it. It does make sense in a lot of ways that this single both tops and tails the Celtic Soul era for Dex. Yes. Mm. Um, it is, of course, remarkable that we haven't talked about Dexies before on no, chart music. insane. Uh, it's long overdue, and I'm going to say before anyone else does, we need to talk about Kevin. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Neil has, I mean, I, th I think we're, we're almost telepathic on the same wavelength where, where Dexy's concerned. He said a lot, a lot of the things that really rang true to me. In fact, he even used some of the words and phrases that I was going to use, but that's not going to stop me. I'm just going to say it anyway. <laughs> uh... It is a struggle to find the right words to express what Dexy's mean to me. So instead, right, to begin with, let me tell you about the view from my bedroom window in 1983. <laughs> and if anyone thinks this is boring, listen to this, right? There's the door. <laughs> Don't let it hit you in the arse <laughs> on the way out, right? Because I do have a point. So out of my bedroom window, 1983, across seven rows of terraced rooftops, right, the first thing I could see was Barry Docks, which was built 100 years earlier. By 1913, Barry Docks was the busiest coal port in the world. But by the time I was alive, a lot of it was derelict, and the main trade was importing bananas. These big white geese ships would come in, and I'd see them come in, and there were always stories of tarantulas sneaking in with the bananas. Um, <laughs> in fact, there was supposedly a crumbling brick wall in the docks which had become infested with tarantulas. Um, although the only infestation I ever saw down there was wild rabbits living among the scrap heaps, which seemed really evocative. Mm. Um, 
Slightly to the right of the docks, you had Woodham's Yards, which was this steam locomotive graveyard, famous, in fact, where the rusting hulks of dozens of Great Western Railway engines were just left there to rot. And uh, it's where my parents took me for an arty black-and-white photo shoot when I was a toddler. And it's where the glue-sniffing skinheads I mentioned earlier on were were lurking by this point. (laughs) And beyond that, you'd see Barry Island. And in the houses of Barry Island, and this tells you how much I was just sat there staring... I saw the shapes of dogs. Um, there was one that looked like a crouching Pekingese, and there was another house that looked like a Scotty. And my dad came to visit once, and I pointed out the window, and I showed him the dog-shaped houses over on Barry Island. And um, <laughs> he said he could see them too, though I do wonder if he was just sort of humouring me while worrying about me slightly, right? And to the right of those houses were the green rooftops of Butlins, where a year later I'd be selling seafood, um, treacherous Steph and all of that. Um, (laughs) And then next to that was the fairground, the Barry Island Pleasure Park. And um, by this time, the star attraction there was a pirate ship that span upside down, um, imported from Germany called Traumboot. Um, (laughs) And uh, legend had it that if you vomited downwards just past the apex of the turn, it would splatter everyone in front of you, but also yourself, because you would come around by the time your vomit (laughs) had reached the bottom of it. And then beyond that was the sea, um, the islands of Flat Home and Steep Home, and the smugglers' haunt of Sully Island, uh, which is a tidal island you could walk to, which was probably not frequented by Captain Henry Morgan, but we all believed it was because it did have a piratical past. <laughs> and over on the other side, exotic England, where on a sunny day you'd see the flash of car rooftops on the Mendips and the Quantocks, and and at night time you see the twinkling lights of Western Supermare over there. And then 20 miles away, these two ominous giant cubes, which was the Magnox nuclear reactors at Hinkley Point, A. And uh, if one of those went up, we all went up. Mm. The reason I can remember that vista in such detail is that I spent so much time staring out of my bedroom window. I was lonely. Mm. It feels like I'm exaggerating a little bit saying that because I had one or two friends nearby. Andrew with the air rifle, who I mentioned. (laughs) Screwy and Pete with the petrol bombs, who I mentioned. And I sort of had mates at school, but I was an only child. I had stepbrothers who I'd see on Sunday with my dad and stepmom, and they were great. But for most of the week, six days of the week, it was just me and my mum. I was lonely. So I sat in my room staring out of the window and what I listened to more than anything else was Dexie's Midnight Runners Mm. and that's why the view from that window and the sound of this album To Raya are inextricably connected for me Mm. more than any any connection I can think of between a sort of time and a place and the music that's Mm. the one that's the most unbreakable for me Dexies and that view and also their first album Searching for Young Soul Rebels which by this point I picked up on a cheapo re-release on the Fame label (laughs) and the dodgy EMI cash-in compilation called Gino which uh, had all the all the b-sides and stuff and all the standalone singles just Dexies are the sound of my loneliness Mm. I shouldn't say loneliness I should say aloneness because loneliness has negative connotations but Mm. but Dexies Dexies made isolation from the common herd feel more like an imperative they instilled in you this sense of inner strength of self-reliance self-discipline and the conviction that even if hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The entire fucking world doesn't agree with you. It doesn't mean you're wrong. Mm, And they played the role in my life that the Smiths would take over the following year. Not just that it's okay to be alone. It's more than okay. It's the noble and honourable path. It's what Richie Edwards was getting at in Yes by the Mannix when he wrote Solitude, Solitude, the 11th Commandment. But there was still this faint yearning. Neil mentioned this, 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 uh, this sense of community that they were mourning the loss of. Yeah. There was this yearning of wanting to find someone else who gets it. Yeah. Uh, in, in the song, I couldn't help it if I tried on the first album, Kevin sings, but if there is someone, point me at someone, show me someone who feels like I see. And to this day, I don't know if Neil finds this, but I always find this. If you meet someone who gets Dexies, you've got a friend for life, right? Because I like the fact that everyone gets them wrong, right? I like the fact that to basics and norms, they're just the common Eileen band. Right, yes. um, Americans only know them for Come On Eileen. Yeah. There's that bit, that famous bit in The Simpsons, where Homer's barbershop quartet, the B Sharps, <laughs> are pipped to their Grammy Award for Baby On Board by yeah, Dexys yeah. <laughs> with Come On Eileen. And Homer says this, you know, a little aside, it's not one line, it says something like, oh, well, that's definitely not the last we've heard of those guys. <laughs> you know, the, the joke being that for Americans, it was the last they'd yeah, heard of yeah, those yeah, guys. Yeah. And, and Brits are much better. 97% of them. Just know that song, plus Gino and maybe Jackie Wilson said, right? But fuck the 97%. If you meet someone at a party, if, if I meet someone who's a Dexys fan, that's the whole night gone, right? You're in a corner, the two of you, talking about nothing else. Yeah. Just delighted to have found a fellow disciple, mm. even though Kevin railed against the whole idea of disciples on the song Liars A2E, of course. But mm. but there, there aren't many bands like that. For me. Sparks are the other one. That If I meet someone, that's it. The night's gone. Mm. Just, you're talking mm. about nothing mm. else. Yeah. Maybe sometimes Prince, depending what kind of Prince fan they are. Yeah. I mean, I've got loads more, but maybe I should just take a breath and let somebody else say something. But that goes some way to telling you what Dexy's meant to me. Well, I was watching this with a mate, and uh, the, the, there's an age difference between us of about... 10 12 years or something like that and the minute this came on i was hardly fisting it big style yeah yeah and she said oh fucking hell i hate dexes and i just looked around and said what the fuck are you going on about this is this is fucking skill yeah <laughs> and she just said oh you've never worked in wedding hospitality then have you and stood there <laughs> dreading the clock striking 10 again and come on fucking eileen coming on again but that's a fucking tune. It is. It is, yeah. You've got to make your peace with it. I think Kevin's made his peace with it because they do play it live. I say, you know, in the present tense, it's been yeah. a long time since they did a gig, but they, they started playing it live again and they've made their peace with it and they understand that people want to hear it. It's a great song, but yeah, we will talk about that another yeah. time, I'm sure. Let's talk about this song because this is fucking mint. 
I love this. Oh yeah. I don't think it's their strongest. I don't think it's the best, but it's a really rousing introduction A to the album mm. and B to this whole phase of Dexy's yeah. career. And I have got to admit, it took me a little bit by surprise. I didn't buy it first time mm. out, and I know I didn't because the first version that came out is a is a hard laminated cardboard sleeve. And the one I had was a flimsy paper one with a corner snips, which mm. meant I got it for from the paper shop. in it. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't on board with the Celtic Soul direction at first. The weird thing is, this isn't a million miles away from bands like The Chieftains and Steel Eye Span, which Mm. my dad had forced me to watch at the Cambridge Folk Festival two years before this. And I hated at the time. But Kevin had the power to drag me, kicking and screaming, towards Celtic Folk and Celtic Soul. He had that charisma about him. And it's like Neil said, it was a decision. It's like, I don't care what the rest of Pop is doing. I'm going to drag my band and you towards this yeah yeah and he, he even did it to his own band he, he made the trombonist um big jimmy patterson jimmy um uh, re- retrain as a fiddle player mm. um for mm. being trombonist and yeah it's it's a rousing statement of, of intent in the context of the album yeah but it's also a demand for radical politeness more please and thank yes. you yes yeah, yeah what a great sentiment to write a song about yeah. this wasn't the the track that snagged me into 2ia i think that was probably the cover jackie wilson said uh, which is kind of irresistible. And talking of uh, Jackie Wilson said, I get a feeling that Jackie Wilson said was on the menu first for Dexes and they've lifted from here because if you played the beginning of both tunes on a Morse code thing, same rhythm. Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Good well good Nick, Kevin. But the thing is, I mean, yeah, it, it's weird talking about the singles because one of the words that Simon said, you know, I mean, a lot of the words we've been using, I think discipline is is so, so yeah. important. And, and you know, th- that's what's odd about Dex is coming out of this post-punk era in a way. But whereas mm. post-punk would suggest that, you know, it's all about being innovative and, and forging this future in a sense by challenging the listener, Dexes just love pop too much. And they know that pop mm. is the discipline that excises indulgence and celebrates the things that are important. This is a, a fucking fantastic single. And I loved Common Eileen, and I've never really had a problem mm. with Common Eileen. But the moment for me in this period of Dexes that mattered the most is probably a song that, you know, people who, who only know the singles, wouldn't they? Something like Old, um, mm. on, yeah. on the B-side of uh, Touraya, I think. It's like Pearl's Cafe, actually, on more specials. Um, it's yes. one of those songs that, you know... As a young person, you taught loads of shit stuff by rock and roll. Be rude, you know, be rock and roll and all of this. And that politeness, that respect for your elders, and not your elders and betters, not a deference, but just mm. a compassion. That's a revelatory thing to be given at a young age. And, you know, that to me is what remains in my heart about Dexes to this day. They know that compassion isn't pity. They know the difference, and and that's what I know. I'm talking about them in a vague sense, but remember when I was talking about the Stones, and I was saying they're sort of in my heart. And Dex isn't one of those bands, and all I think. Let's talk about the downside of this performance, shall we? Oh, is there a downside? Zoo. (laughs) Oh fucking hell! As is the style of the early '80s, Zoo are in full defect, trying to summon up a Kaylee vibe, but ending up like a 
country dance class for an infant school full of giants. Yeah. And when I say country dance, so you know where the emphasis is firmly on. <laughs> yeah, it's Alan Partridge's New Year's Eve uh, Millennium yes. Barn Dance, isn't it? Must must not repeat not turn into an all-night rave. <laughs> they do yeah. a bit of um, twirling around and then they give up on that and they end up doing that slow-motion mod dance where you kick your legs about. They did it before when Foster and Alan turned up and fucking hell, wait till we get to that performance. Jesus. There are a problem throughout this episode. So yes. Yeah, it gets worse, actually. Yeah. It does get it worse. It gets far worse. <laughs> you know, they're not pop people. What can I say? They're light entertainment people. They're choreographed redcoats, ultimately. And I, I don't really think that Flick Colby's heart was in Zoo, to be honest with mm. you. And whenever we see Zoo in this episode, though they're massively annoying, and we should remember that, you know, this is this is one of their kind of last outings, in a sense. Mm. By September, they're, they're mm. gone. To be replaced by cheerleaders, as they are called. Yes. Which you see a bit of in the background here. And then the cheerleaders go by 86. Mm. It's already seeming a little bit dated to have a dance troupe on top yeah. of the pops. But Zoo are really not doing any any kind of favours to that idea of having a dance no. troupe. They're appalling throughout this episode. The one thing I'll say is um, I hardly noticed them during this performance. Because I just yeah. couldn't take my eyes off Dexies. Yeah, me too. Other performances, yeah. Zoo do annoy me. But um, in, in this Dexys one, I am just focused on them, really. And um, it's actually interesting picking up the signs from Dexys' clothing in this, because they are already moving on from the dungarees phase. Mm. Kevin and Billy look like they have bar towels hanging from their waists. I don't know what that's all about. By the way, um, <laughs> Billy Adams is now an IT consultant. Just seems like a lovely bloke on Twitter. Go and give him a follow. I think he's, he's Kevin Adams' his real name. Um <laughs> But yeah, um, just let me state for the record, I never wore dungarees and daps. I didn't go for that. <laughs> I was I was one look behind uh, with Dexys. I, I bought um, a woolly hat from Army Surplus nice. and copied their 1980 look instead. And I definitely didn't go for their preppy Ivy League Wall Street look in 1985. I, I, I wondered what the <laughs> hell they were doing at that time. Mm, I do. Yeah. I get it now, but I didn't get it then. Did you try and grow a tash? <laughs> I think I, I uh, even by the age of about 20, um, I could go three or four days without needing to shave. So no. <laughs> Anything else to say about this? Loads, loads. <laughs> There's this mad seven minute song on the album called Until I Believe in My Soul. Oh, I love that. In which Kevin Rowland at one point goes, I'll punish the body to believe in the soul. I will punish my body until I believe in my soul. Now, I don't believe in my soul. I'm not a dualist. I don't believe in the second substance of soul or spirit, right? But the closest I get to accepting the idea of a soul is when I listen to Dexys. Because what Dexys do to me, what they mean to me, is something that it fucking vibrates within me. It seeps into my skeleton and my viscera. It's right in there. And I've already said that at this age, I was a fizzing human bomb. I was just full of all this pent-up emotion and pent-up sexuality and anger with no outlet or target for any of those things. You've got all this angst, and Neil's already used the word Weltschmerz, um, and Bratwurst and Kartoffelsalat and other German <laughs> concepts. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a very German time when you're 15, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I, I had um, a strong puritanical streak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and obviously, obviously, Dexys were the band for me. And Neil's already mentioned they had a tour called the Projected Passion Review and, yeah, the Intense Emotions Limited fan club. I went to the uh, aforementioned Cardiff St. David's Hall to see them on the bridge tour. That was my first gig, Ooh, my first indoor right. gig anyway. 
And it's an overused, hackneyed old cliche, but it was almost a religious experience for me. I went alone. Nobody else was fan enough to come with me. And I sat on my own at the front of the balcony, just soaking up every second of it mm. and just wanting Kevin to impart what, whatever he, he could through not just the lyrics, but just any glance, any movement, any look. It was, you know, it, there, there was... And he hated this. As I say, the song Liars A to E. He didn't want mm. that. But... Nevertheless, he was so charismatic and so messianic that almost despite himself, he did make people follow him in that kind of cult-like way. And to this day, if you go on, on the Dexys um, sort of fan Facebook group, that's the spirit of it. It really is. It's just absolute devotion. I, I said earlier on that, that you, you meet a Dexys fan, you've got a friend for life. Have I told a story about what happened with one of my Melody Maker colleagues? I think we have. Where <laughs> we, we have. We have. <laughs> Oh, I cut that bit. All right. Well, no, hang on. You weren't involved in that conversation. So so there was this time at the Reading Festival in the 90s. Um, the Melody Maker crew were all back in the bar of the Ramada at the end of the day. And, um, yeah, this has already been talked about by other people on chart music. Yeah. But as it was me, I'm, I'm going to own this story. <laughs> and um, I, was, I was talking about Dexies, as I so often do. And Everett True, who was kind of very much my superior within Melody Maker, I think it's the assistant mm-hmm. editor at the time, just starts flailing at my upper arm <laughs> with these pathetic little punches, like these pathetic sort of the punches that an eight-year-old might give you, but flailing away, going, you have no right, you have no right, you've got no right to talk about Dexies, you don't understand Dexies, <laughs> like that. Like, and and I, I just sort of sat there, sort of like quite amused looking at him like what the fuck do you think you're doing <laughs> how did it start it's just that he thought dexies were his band and i didn't i i somehow didn't deserve them <laughs> <laughs> i would hope from you know everything i've said already on this episode you at least believe me mm. that i was into it yeah. i was there i was a fucking fan right <laughs> um, i'm not faking it i'm not faking it to be cool i'm not faking it to earn my music journalist stripes you know, it was it was true. It was it was real. He en- eventually ran out of steam and just sort of sat there, kind of sobbing or something. Oh, and um, Ted Maiko, um, who was uh, our former features editor, who'd come back and was just hanging around with us in the bar, said to Alan Jones, our editor, Jonesy, if that was me doing that, you'd have punched me out. And Jonesy said, "Yeah, but I like Everett." <laughs> <laughs> That's a moment that always comes back to me that Dexys fans and and uh, I guess bless ET for having such strong emotions yeah, about it yeah. are so committed and so, so sold on the whole thing of Dexys that they do think that they belong to them and only them and it can drive people to behave in sometimes slightly embarrassing ways. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, the Celtic Soul Brothers jumped four places to number twenty, its highest position. Unbeknownst to the pop craze youngsters, this is the last appearance on Top of the Pops by Dex's Mark II, as two weeks later Come On Eileen ended the seven-week reign of Billie Jean at number one in America, and they spent much of the rest of the year over there, by which time they'd slimmed down to a three-piece and spent two years putting together their next LP, Don't Stand Me Down, with the intention of releasing no singles from it. But Roland 
eventually relented. And the follow-up to this, This Is What She's Like, only got to number 78 in November of 1985. But thanks to the success of the sitcom Brushstrokes, the theme tune, Because Of You, got to number 13 in the last week of 86, their last hit single before they split up in early 1987. By the way, this is what she's like full-length version absolute fucking masterpiece if anyone doesn't get what we're wanging on about about how great and how unique (laughs) dexies were just listen to this is what she's like and if you don't get it you'll never get it but if you do then thank me later Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, But we will. Uh, And there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers, so join us for Plenty Plenty Questions. Dex has been my runners. It's a very special night on Top of the Pops tonight because we're joined by a lot of the people from fame. Are they shooting another series, Leroy? Yes, we will be doing another one. Great. Here's Culture Club and Church of the Poison Mind. We whip back to a powerless bait, accompanied by none other than Gene Anthony Ray, better known as Leroy from the Kids From Fame. Born in the head of talent manager David De Silva and playwright Christopher Gore in 1976 and passed on to the director Alan Parker in 1978, Fame was a film about the lives of students at the High School of Performing Arts in New York, which was released in May of 1980, made $42 million worldwide and won two Oscars for Best Original Song and Best Original Score. In January of 1982, NBC broadcast the first episode of the TV show of the same name, which was immediately picked up by the BBC and was first broadcast in June of that year, directly and cunningly right after Top of the Pops. Not only was it an instant smash, pulling in ten and a quarter million viewers by the end of the first series, 400,000 more than the second-rated BBC One show of the night, Top of the Pops, but it encouraged RSO to re-release Irene Cora's version of the film theme, which soared into the chart at number four in early July and spent three weeks at number one sniffing the chance to turn a pound on the side. Songs from the first series of the TV show were snapped up by BBC Records and mere weeks into the run of the first series, the leotard-crazed youngsters were encouraged to buy the LP The Kids From Fame and in August it began an eight-week run at number one in the LP chart, being bumped down to number two for four weeks while Love Over Gold had a go at number one and then spending 
spending four more weeks at the top. While RCA realised the mistake they made leasing Kids From Fame tunes to the BBC and had rushed out the Kids From Fame again, which was at number two during the second run of the original LP at number one. Meanwhile, in the singles charts, the kids took high fidelity to number five in September of 1982 and Star Maker to number three for two weeks the month after that. Although their third release, Mannequin, only got to number 50 in December of 1982, Famer was reaching a crescendo at the end of the year. After three gigs in the Brighton Centre, the Royal Albert Hall and the NEC at the end of December of 1982, they came back full scale this week to commence a 21-date tour, starting at the Blackpool Opera House, then two nights at the Manchester Apollo, and the night before this episode, the Edinburgh Playhouse. Tomorrow they start two nights at the Royal Centre in Nottingham, and no, that wasn't my first gig, (laughs) and then take in Wembley Arena for two nights, then the Brighton Centre, the NEC, the Coliseum at St Hostel, and they finish off at the Gaumont in Southampton before nipping over to the Netherlands. Naturally, this has caused the BBC to push the boat out in a splurge on one group not seen since they gave an entire week over to the Osmonds in 1974. Not only have they screened concert footage from their first tour last Saturday and Bank Holiday Monday, but Russell Harty has given over an entire episode of his BBC Two chat show over to the kids while they were doing their dress rehearsal in Blackpool. But all is not well in the fame camp. The tabloids are gleefully reporting that the second series is already dropping like a stone in the American ratings. Rumours are abounding that the show's about to be axed and Hilary Kingsley, the Daily Mirror's TV reviewer, has plunged in the first knife in an article (laughs) entitled Fame's Noisy Show-Offs. Can fame have lost its appeal with American viewers because the stars made too many chat show appearances there? The good thing about the series was seeing all the different sorts of struggle, but on the Russell Harty show on Tuesday, the stars turned out to be noisy show-offs and all their talents boiled down to a couple of mediocre yuck. (laughs) Anyway, here's Gene Anthony Ray, who actually went to the proper academy, but only lasted a year because he wasn't up for all the discipline. He was cast as Leroy in the film version and reportedly used to bring his mam along to the film in so she could sell all the rest of the cast all the drugs they fancied. (laughs) He was kept on for the TV version and has become one of its most prominent stars. Chaps, I think I've taken the long way round to saying that fame was fucking massive in 1982 stroke three. It was enormous. And interestingly, Gene Anthony Ray... Uh, who appears here. He's also interviewed by The Face magazine in 1983 for a piece called um, So Who Wants to Live Forever? Where Face, I mean, you know, apprehending the kind of massive success of the TV series, basically interview people who actually attended the real high school. And his quotes in that interview are quite interesting because he says about the real high school, you know, he says, and I quote directly here, to me, they tried to brainwash the kids in that school. That's why I left. Um, they mm-hmm. try to brainwash us with the, the idea that everything is beautiful. War is beautiful. Death is beautiful. Everything is beautiful. And I believe in a way, yeah, but some things are bad. Some shit do stink. 
<laughs> is the quote. Um, but fame was huge. I mean, I definitely partook mm. of it. I don't, I'm, I'm guessing you, you two were tip hip. <laughs> no, not at all. But watch it. There's fuck no, all, I watched it. There was fuck all else on, yeah. and it was straight after top of the box. Exactly. Pops, you know. Um, yeah. And it's one of those shows that actually I watched, but I wouldn't admit I watched it in front of my friends, who were of course all boys. Much like the Hot Shoe Show, really. <laughs> Crucially, it was American and thus fascinating. Just to see those streets yes. and those people. New York, yeah. yeah. Much as Cagney and Lacey is fascinating. But oddly, you know, I mean, it's very influential in a way. I think we talked previously about dancicals and musicals and stuff. What fame provides is a very massively influential, the TV series that is, a massively influential idea throughout the kind of Reagan era in America, really. The idea that, mm. you know, race, class, sex, they don't matter, but hard work does. Yeah. And, and this yeah. kind of mythical meritocracy where even if toughness or prejudice is hinted at, it's all melted away by the end of 50 minutes. It's a persuasive thing. The music was always this horrific mix of show tunes and prog. But, but mm. with that Thatcherite Reaganite message behind it, it was a definite part of that drive towards health and efficiency that we see in the 80s. It's a mad change yeah. in the culture really when you think about it you know gyms become places people go to voluntarily yeah. and and yes. suddenly you know trainers sweatbands leg warmers leg warmers it, it always reminds me of that that time adrian mole goes to the roller disco in his pe kit because barry yes. Kent's told him to do that <laughs> but that it also has bits of that late 70s early 80s new york city look that had touches of hip-hop style in it too and i, I also love three mm. of a kind's parody of it you know, this, this is where you pay yeah. with money. Um, but but the thing is, after the show, I think for most of us, and this, this might match up with your experiences, after we'd seen the show, we got to see the film, which is much bleaker. Yeah. And much more miserable. Dark as fuck, isn't it? Dark as fuck. Instantly becomes legend when you're a teenage boy because it's got a pair of tits in it, even if it's in a disturbing yes. scene. You know, much like trading oh, places. Oh, that's grim. It's that a grim scene. scene. But we were about a year, in, in 83, we are about a year before what we could call full-on explicit US triumphalism, which I'd say is enshrined in Born mm. in the USA. But but the series started that trend, or at least tapped into it. The film's really 70s, gritty, seedy. The series takes yeah. all of that and sort of deodorizes it and airbrushes it. And much as yeah. Born in the USA is actually a tragic song that became a triumphal anthem. So Fame the Movie is a film that actually says your dreams will be derailed by reality that becomes a TV series mm. about, yeah, just work harder. But there's a colossal yeah. link between fame and all the talent show bollocks that we've been drowned in in the last yeah. 20 years. You know, talent plus a sob story yeah. plus endlessly going on about how you need and deserve success equals mm. success. You know, and I'd also, just as a moany teacher, I'd also like to lodge that I think fame had a damaging effect on a whole generation of education managers and what they think performing arts colleges should look like. They want yeah. performing arts places to be places where, you know, people sit around with acoustic guitars and suddenly let's put the show on here and here's a song starting and there's a yeah. dance routine. And of course, it, it never works out like that. So really influential thing, fame. And yeah, as, as important a weekly yeah. watch for me, anyways, Top of the Pops was. Round about this time, I auditioned for the Central Drama Workshop, which had just been created by the still sort of new TV station. Oh my God. And I was one of the 5% of the hundred or so kids there who wasn't wearing a fame t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I had my white Lonsdale sweatshirt on. Did you have leg warmers yeah, though? Yeah, no leg warmers, no. <laughs> and uh, I feel this somehow contributed to me not getting in. <laughs> and I still lie there in bed at night just thinking, oh, should have been me on Drama Rama and your mother wouldn't like it. <laughs> I think I was a bit too old for the pink windmill kids. Thank fuck. Uh, Lonsdale top, that's the jam fan in you, isn't it? Yeah. I think a whole generation of dancers and that were inspired to go to performing arts schools and stuff like that by fame. I think it was a really influential thing. Yeah. 
And it's quite interesting that uh, disconnect you mentioned between the TV show and the film, mm. you know, the, the expectation you have when you watch the film, and it's something a lot darker. I would connect that to um, Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. That when yeah. you listen mm. to the album, because everybody had the album Saturday Night Fever, but, you know, certainly my age, too young to watch the film. And, and then, you know, it's actually really dark. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and, and hugely influential fame. Um, uh, I suppose it was uh, the forerunner of Glee, that awful show a few years ago. Yeah. But I did watch it uh, in the same way that you would watch things like Friends uh, in the 90s or Neighbours from the 80s onwards because it was just there and it was sort of easy mm. to sort of follow the storyline without getting particularly emotionally invested and um, yeah. yeah it was it was enjoyable trash I would say did you see that Russell Harty episode no oh it's cross-platform brand synergization at it's absolute <laughs> worst I mean he, he goes he goes to see him in Blackpool while they're rehearsing and everybody's just, hey, whoa, wow, Russell, do some tap dancing for us. Wow, you're good. <sighs> and then three six-year-olds from the local tap school turn up on stage to present the cast a massive stick of rock with Kids From Fame written through it. And, uh, yeah, just a big advert for fame by the BBC there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and the soundtrack, I mean, I remember it being in the charts for just, forever I, I think it managed mm. to stay at number one for a cumulative total of about three months which is the longest yeah, 12 weeks yeah yeah which is the longest run since the Grease soundtrack album which, which is kind of about right you know it, it's an American cultural juggernaut and um Gene Anthony Ray he plays Leroy his character in the show is so close to his real life story because he yeah. learned to dance at block parties um mm. his Harlem neighborhood would go over to the Bronx and they'd have dance battles. And this is like something out of a certain music video that we may be about to watch <laughs> later on. Yes. But yeah, uh, he basically is his character in fame. And um, I think he's, he was very much there as a bit of eye candy, wasn't he? He's a, he's a sexy man. There's mm. no doubt about mm. it. Mm. And um, I did watch a bit of the um, Kids from Fame live show from the Royal Albert Hall that I found on YouTube. And there's a bit where they're doing the musical number Desdemona, which is basically their yes. adaptation of Othello. He plays Othello, obviously. And when he comes <laughs> on, people are screaming, you know. Mm, yeah. yeah, he did He did have that charisma. Not much of a singer, has to be said, but mm. a hell of a dancer. Really good. Yeah. And um, I guess we have to sort of talk about the, the tragedy of what happened to him. You mentioned... Yeah. Uh, yeah. His, his mum basically being a, a drug dealer. And, I mean, he didn't have a chance, this guy, really, when you look at mm. his life. He did get kicked out for um, basically missing a 100 uh, sessions for, fil you know, filming the show. A hundred times he just didn't show up. Uh, Fog. And, yeah. And um, afterwards, he, he was intermittently in sort of film and TV and stuff, but he slept on park benches for a while. And, uh, mm. Yeah, and he he tried to set up a dance school in Milan, but he um, contracted HIV and uh, had a stroke and died of complications from that stroke. And you know when you read an obituary, um, I don't know if it's still the same, but in the old days there used to be this kind of code in, in yes. obituaries, the language that they're written in, these euphemisms that you can read between the lines. The Telegraph described uh, Gene Anthony Ray as a frantic party goer and they mm. said he's flamboyantly camp he brushed aside questions about his sexuality he never married that old one mm. Bates tells us that it's a special night because a lot of the cast of fame are in the building then pivots to Ray and asks are they shooting another series Leroy 
Yes, we will be doing another one, says Ray. Yeah, thanks. Great, <laughs> says Bates, <laughs> and turns away from him to introduce the next act. I mean, did you think Bates even knows who yeah. he is? They might as well not be there, because every question <laughs> yeah. they get asked is just like one-word answers. You know, yeah. Are you enjoying the tour? Yeah, great. Um, they might as well be fucking cardboard cutouts, to be honest. Yeah. Now, you may be wondering why Bates is giving Leroy, one of the undisputed lust objects of 82-83, stroke such short shrift... But I direct you to an article in Smash Hits last month entitled The Big Match, where the pop colossi of the era are asked about who their perfect date would be and what they get up to. John Taylor, for example, would like to have a jacuzzi in New York with Tanya Roberts from Charlie's Angels. And probably did. Steve Norman wants a pint and a pie with Deirdre and the Rovers return. Hands off, she's mine. <laughs> Lamar lies that he'd like to go to the island in the Blue Lagoon and write a song for Brooke Shields. Linval of the Fun Boy 3 would like to make Anna Ford her first coffee of the morning. <laughs> and Joe Elliott wants, quote, the little blonde out of books fizz for whatever she fancy (laughs) but one person has written gene anthony ray he's the only reason i watch fame we'd go for a walk in the park then go to a club with friends and dance to homo sapiens by pete shelley wow wow who is that the person who wrote that Janice Long. Oh, God bless Ooh, Simon's a bit jealous. <laughs> Just can't believe no one's gone for Legoland with Sean Connery and then a lovely lamb lunch in the centre of Windsor, but never mind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the next single is Church of the Poison Mind by Culture Club. We've covered Culture Club twice on Chart Music, and this, their third single, is a lead cut from their second LP, Colour by Numbers, which isn't out until October. It's the follow-up to Time, Clock of the Heart, which got to number three in December of 1982, and it's the highest new entry this week, straight in at number nine. However, like Dex's, one of their old singles, in this case Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, has blown up in America and is currently at number two, one place below Billie Jean and one above Hungry Like the Wolf, so it's safe to say that they're not available for a top of the pop performance Mm. so here's the video set in and around and above and away from london featuring a new addition to the club helen terror who boy george invited to provide backing vocals for their debut lp last year and has been pushed to the front for this Mm. first video of the night chaps it's interesting isn't it how both culture club and Style Council with Speak Like a Child have videos out in this period where they're in open-top vehicles. I was wondering what, what the conceit uh, of that mm. is. I think, in a sense, it's a desire to put a band in an available rather than an elitist place. And in the case of Church of the Poison Mind, yes. it's, it's kind of a way of making light, in a way, of what's actually a thrillingly punchy, non-stop, almost angry record. I love the way this song went in the album context. I think it's the first song on side B, isn't it? A Colour by Numbers, as I recall. And it really gives that that side of the album a real kick Mm. you know if this is a motown homage and there's a lot of motown homages about in this period it's a homage not really to those motown songs that give you any sense of release it's a homage to records like i mean i'm instantly reminded always 
of Stevie Wonder's Uptight or Martha Reeves and the Vandellas Nowhere Run. Mm. It's those kind of Motown records that keep you yeah. to- tightly wound up. Yeah. You know, and the relief in the record comes not from Culture Club or George himself, but, but Helen Terry's vocal, which is just amazing. Yeah. As is Judd Lander's harmonica, actually, and what a story that guy has. Tell it, Neil. Well, no, I mean, it's just he's one of those guys who's appeared on an insane amount of stuff playing harmonica. And his history, both as a performer and a session guy, but also as a manager and just a motivator behind pop, he's one of those names that you wouldn't know unless you were digging deep into British pop history. But he's he's mm. all over it. He's all over a lot of stuff in the 70s and 80s in terms of both management, but also lending his harmonica duties um, to stuff. And I love his harmonica on this yeah. this tune. It's both simultaneously like Stevie Wonder, but it's also got little traces of um, Bowie, uh, A New Career in a New Town. Um, maybe I'm reading that into mm. it, but yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad Culture Club are actually here in a video sense. I think it's a difficult thing to follow, isn't it, Dexes, mm. stage-wise? And I really enjoy the video for this. But it has got similarities to that Style Council video. By the way, I did reach across to my record shelf, if you could hear any scraping <laughs> and banging then. And I, I can um, confirm, yes, Neil, it's uh, the first track on yeah, side two yeah. of Colour by Numbers. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Neil mentioned that um, Jackie Wilson said was the record that snagged him into Dexys. I think this was the one that snagged me into Culture Club. Right. Uh, even mm. though I did appreciate their previous stuff like you know do you really want to hurt me and particularly um time clock of the heart which i just thought was a sublime kind of philly soul pastiche Mm. but this one i was a sucker for anything that was motown derived Mm. i was discovering motown around this time through bands that i already loved like culture club and dexies and the style council and i loved that to and fro between 60s soul and 80s british pop um, it, it really worked for me. And this song's one of the best examples of that. That relentless yeah. four to the floor Tamla Motown beat it's mm. got going on. It was just irresistible. And Helen Terry, this is yeah, this is her big arrival because the album's not out yet. So this is the first we we hear of it. It's the lead single off the album. Mm. What a vocal performance. It's all it's all about her yeah. really. Yeah. Um and when you're on a record that has um, a singer with as, a voice as beautiful as Boy George's to to actually completely overshadow him and dominate him is quite some achievement. Mm. And uh, this video, I feel like I know every fucking beat of yeah. this video, yeah, yeah. every scene of it. It's just so imprinted on my mind, and I can't think that I would have seen it that many times. No, because we were starved for any kind of pop on TV in those days. So mm. I, I must have just happened upon it every single time it was on, and. Then you know, seen it several times in the in, in the sort of modern age, but yeah, he's in this. Well, they're all in this nineteen uh, fifties Cadillac. John Moss driving it. They're yeah. being pursued by um, Japanese paparazzi mm. everywhere they go, mm. and it's it's a caper. Yeah, video. Um, Chris Gabrin, who directed it, he also directed things like Captain Sensible's What and Madness Shut Up and It Must Be Love, Yazoo Don't Go. All his videos tended to have that kind of comedic mm. caper like. Uh, element mm. to it um, in terms of culture club he'd already done time clock of the heart but in this one he is sort of doing his kind of comedy chops it's basically like um, the Beatles help where yeah. They're, yeah. they're being chased around by the press and there's the bit where culture club take refuge in this kind of warehouse like building and they're pursued inside there and when the photographers kick the door down there's just like about a dozen girls there all sat there looking like yeah. boy George and it's like oh fuck which one one of which by the way was boy George's sister <laughs> Siobhan yeah. Right. And, oh, uh, incidentally, um, a Blitzkid icon 
gets a, a, a little cameo in there. When when the door to the building is barged mm. open, mm. Um, there's that very statuesque woman with very white yes. hands yeah. and and uh, vertical peroxide hair, uh, who is Scarlet Cannon, who was a sort of a, a muse and a model for um, a, a lot of the, that Blitz era, right? Um, on on the front of various magazines like ID and so on. So that yeah, that that's uh, George sort of harking back to his Blitz kid past a little bit. But yeah, I clearly must have loved it then. The video that is because it's so imprinted on my mind. But watching mm. it now, it's one of those things where it's just a precious capsule of old London. Mm. I found myself pausing it, yes, to figure out like which. It looks like a, a Hawksmoor church that they're driving past, and there's you know um, a couple of dozen of those in London. So which one is it? And I never quite figured it out. Or where's that news agent with the Rothman sign yeah. <laughs> and all of that? It looks a little bit like Holloway Road, but maybe that's just because I'm so familiar with mm. Holloway Road, and a lot of London would have looked like that at that time. I mm. don't know. But um, no, I thought Holloway Road as well. It's that big wideness to it. Yeah. Uh. And then they get in a plane, which is somehow parked outside the warehouse. Yeah, yes. sort of step, step into it and uh, fly off to America with, I think, Roy Hay in the captain's hat. It's 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 all good fun that that video because the final shot is of the Statue of Liberty, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is, to my mind was saying, oh, this is where we're going to be for a bit. Yeah, a little bit. Thank fuck it wasn't the World Trade Center. <laughs> That would have ruined the enjoyment of it nowadays. Fuck me. Can I just stop and correct myself? It's a hard day's night, isn't it? Not help. Yes. Where that right, thing yes. happens. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, carry the, on. The, the, I love the video. It's a lovely, fun, fast-moving, cartoonish parody of being a pop star. And I love George in this video as well. I think by this time, 83, you know, the shock of George, if you like, is over. And he's becoming lovable mm. to as many people as possible, yeah. grannies and little kids and, and everyone else. And I don't think that can simply be explained as just part of a long history in UK entertainment of, of drag and, and things like that. He was always very ambiguous about his, his sexuality. And even though, of course, in this period, he's not mm. out, out, if you like. It was pretty clear to me, even as a prepubescent kid, that there was something going on with this guy that wasn't just showmanship or shock or controversy, but part of him. And and it's easy to forget how revelatory that can be. It was the first time really in my life that effeminacy in men was presented not as a punchline or a gag or something to be laughed at, but Mm, as part of that person. You know, I mean, well, I was only sort of, you know, 10, 11. I was sure of my gender, somewhat shakier on my sexuality as a prepubescent teenager. but, But I can only imagine how important George was to people who were unsure of their gender. And who sure who was sure that their yeah. sexuality wasn't heterosexual at the time? It's easy to forget that, but um, mm. yeah, it wasn't just as simple as oh, he's another slightly effeminate male that we can laugh at. It was a little bit more different than that. It really felt like it was part of him, and it wasn't a punchline. It wasn't a gag. It was you know part of him. And if you loved him, you had to love that side of him as well. Yeah, I mean, I've I've said before that George showed me a different way of being a man. But I suppose to a lot of people. He showed a way of not being mm. a man, of resisting the social pressure, the, the sort of normative pressure to declare your gender and to conform to your gender, mm. uh, which, which was hugely important. And, um, of course, uh, nowadays we are so much more clued up on this stuff and uh, we're much more aware of the kind of kaleidoscope of uh, gender and sexuality. And things were a lot more binary in the 80s but it took somebody like George and of course Marilyn being that blatant to sort of kick down the door a little bit to to sort of (laughs) refer to something that happens in this video a lot and and just to push Mm. things forward Mm. and yeah hugely important and by this point yeah he he's not this shocking figure anymore he's he's kind of cute and he he flirts with the camera there's lots of kind of winking and raising the camera and stuff like that 
and he's just really lovable yeah. in this video, yeah. I think. Mm. I love how um, Helen Terry, by the way, is <laughs> filmed next to a fucking shopping trolley. Yes. I mean, I... I know, I, I know she, she's uh, not meant to be this kind of glamorous diva, but come on, come on, give us something. <laughs> I, I assume that was the um, the one man band blokes. That was his um, his load. <laughs> yeah, maybe. There's a story that um, when uh, Rolling Stone um, interviewed Bob Dylan in the eighties, they asked him, "Does he ad- adhere to any church?" And he answered, "Church of the Poison Mind." Uh. He was probably taking the piss, but I I, I like to think it that. I like to hope that he thought this was a good record. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of meaningless, like a lot of Culture Club lyrics around this time, um, because I just devoured the Colour by Numbers album. When I wasn't listening to 2AA, I was probably listening to Colour by Numbers. A lot of the lyrics are written in this kind of cryptic, vaguely spiritual or religious mm. style and leave you to figure out what on earth it's about. Mm. So there's a lot of references like, step out like a God-found child, I saw your eyes across the street. And... Uh, that religion, you could sink it neat, just move your feet and you'll feel fine. Mm. And obviously Church of the Poison Mind and all that. Um, I never really got what it's all about, but you just sort of, it's, it's got this sort of inclusive feeling in it of just come with us and it's going to be all right. Yeah. And I was I was buying it. I really was yeah. at this time. I, I don't think it can be overstated just how important Helen Terry is to Colour by Numbers. Mm. I mean, strictly speaking, she's a session singer, you know, rather than the full member of the group. She's paid per recording yeah. or performance but um yeah she's so important to the success of it um uh, what a fucking voice and every time it goes to her in this yeah. video you are just blown away by the voice it's not like you're thinking oh well she's got a much better voice than boy it's a different type of voice doing a different thing but what a fucking voice she's so important to that album yeah there are at least four tracks on the album that are all about her there's black money there's that's the way I'm only trying to help you. Mm. There's Church of the Poison Minds, of course, and Victims at the very end. Mm. She just totally makes those records what they are. I've even got a lot of time for some of her solo stuff. She did a, a track from the Electric Dreams soundtrack called Now You're Mine, mm. uh, which which is a cracker. She had a sort of minor solo hit with Love Lies Lost, which I, I really liked as well. I think, I, I don't want to sort of speak out of turn, but I think they fell out. Right. And it's a real shame because um, I would love to see the two of them on a stage again. Mm. Of course, she went on to do pretty well for herself in the world of um, TV production, which I'm sure you're going to mention. But mm. have I told the story about Boy George sending me flowers before? <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's all about the absence of Helen Terry, basically. There was a culture club gig that I thought was substandard, and I just didn't think their shaking Helen was up to it. Right. And, uh, yeah, that's that's why George sent me the, the flowers with a vaguely menacing oh. card with it, but... But we're fine. We have a stormy relationship, George and I. But (laughs) (laughs) But I do love him. There is one little bit of fact-checking I'd just like to lodge. That Helen Terry was not a member of the group Thunder Thighs. Right. um, Which a lot of... I've seen mention of that. Thunder Thighs appear on, you know, uh, Walk on the Wild Side and Roll Away the Stone. They did uh, the people who do the backing vocals on those. And they released a few singles of their own, including, you know... The deeply disturbing 1974 Lindsay DePaul penned anti-rape song Central Park Arrest, which which actually became a top 30 wow. hit. But I've read that, oh yeah, Helen Terry is part of them. She was not. Right. I would just like to dispel that notion. Good. And it was another curveball thrown at us, wasn't it? We just got over the shock of Boy George looking like he did. And now we've got a white woman just belting it out. Yeah, I suppose the only precursor was Alf from Yazoo. Mm. Of, you know, being mm. a, a, a plus-sized white lady with the voice of a sort of classic blues singer and mm. really going for it. And mm. uh, 
oh yeah, I mean, I, I could just listen to this record and hear her voice all day. Mm. It's just stunning. And you know what you were saying earlier about Boy George being accepted? Mm. He got to the point by now, only three singles in, and you can't take the piss out of him. Yeah. Because he's, he's, he's that established. If a comedian dressed up as Boy George, you wouldn't go, ha ha ha, isn't Boy George a twat? You'd go, ha ha ha, look at that bloke trying to be Boy George and failing. Mm. Mm. And Ronnie Corbett did it, didn't he? <laughs> Round about this time, one of the best bits in smash hits was in the letters page where people had sent him photographs of their grandpas dressing up as boy george <laughs> just sitting in the armchair not knowing what the fuck was going on but just getting involved in it anyway well they even got boy george's mum done up as boy george yes. picture the two of them together for a post that's right yeah. yeah and it's on your wall didn't you simon yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, Church of the Poison Mind jumped seven places to number two and would stay there for two weeks, held off the top spot by this week's number one. The follow-up, Karma Chameleon, went one better, staying on the summit of Pop Mountain for six weeks and becoming the best-selling single of 1983. Helen Terry continued her involvement with Culture Club for a couple of years, had a solo hit in 1984 when Love Lies Lost got to number 34 in April of that year, and by the end of the decade had stepped down from professional singing, took a job as a researcher for the ITV Saturday morning kids show Motormouth, became a documentary maker for BBC Two in the early 90s, and eventually became the producer of the Brit Awards. And Jean Anthony Ray was reported to have sworn in front of fans outside of a hotel in Plymouth when he missed the coach to the theatre and then smashed up a dressing room, possibly with a massively oversized stick of rock. <laughs> <laughs> No pop crazy says I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it here for now. We've only just scratched the surface. There is much more of this episode to come. So, on behalf of Neil Kulkarni and Simon Price, my name's Al Needham, and I call upon the pop crazed youth of the world to reassemble tomorrow. Stay pop crazed. <laughs> Chart music. Great big Hi, I'm Scott Hancock and I host From Queer to Eternity, a new podcast exploring what it means to be queer, where we have conversations like this. I look at younger generations and go, you can just Google this stuff. The fact that the only mention of queerness was don't get AIDS. <laughs> if I'd been marrying a girl, that would not have happened. Maybe we can find a, a universality that, that we weren't aware of before. That's why this podcast so great, because actually, well, I guess we just don't think to speak of this stuff, and yet it's part of our fabric. From Queer to Eternity, available to listen to now from the Great Big Owl Company.